0: Would you be seated? And before we pray, I want to read from Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains also are his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, for they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let us pray. Father, your word moves us. It pierces us. It challenges us. And God, as we reflect on this psalm, it started out so joyful. Let us come into your presence and make a joyful noise. And Lord, I pray that is what we have done today that as we have sung, as we have gathered together, the noise we have made has been one of joy as we have have proclaimed who you are. You are the Lord, our God, our maker, and we are the sheep of your pasture. But Father, this same passage moves quickly to a warning. And so Father, we pray that we would also heed that warning, that we would be a joyful worshiping people this morning, but we would also heed the warning to not harden our hearts. To not become like those who said the right things, did the right things, and ultimately did not enter into your rest. Father, that is the longing of the human heart, to enter into rest. Our lives are full of toil and hardship and work, disease, destruction, pain, and, and relational conflict and disorder. And Father, you have promised rest to your people promised rest to the people that came out of of Egypt. Your nation, Israel, had rest ahead of them in the promised land and they didn't make it. Not that generation. So Father, I pray for the heavy heart in this room today. Give us that longing for rest that only you can quench. I pray for those that are in despair in our midst. Father, may you lift us up. God, and I know there are those in our midst this morning that uh, it was a challenge to get here, that have have missed being here, gathering with your people because of health concerns. Father, encourage them as they're able to make it. For those washing at home, Father, I pray that you would uplift them as they may be struggling with loneliness or emptiness of of feeling disconnected from your people, Father, I pray they would not feel disconnected from you. God, your word has a heavy warning for us today. Give us ears to hear. May your word flow freely through me, through our kids' ministry workers upstairs, through AJ this evening with our students. May your presence flow through the worship that we give to you. May you bless the new experience of grace we have in in communing with you through the Lord's Supper. May you be present with us in all that we do. And in the resurrected Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, and thank you for being here. Let's have the kids head upstairs for their time of worship. Since preschool ages through the fifth grade, they can make their way out to the lobby now and meet their teachers up there and head up the stairs for their classes. A few things going on in the life of the church to be aware of. Um, You can see in this little bulletin, you can see we always put two or three things in there. We have those. um, We have the Super Bowl party, the the, um, students Winter Conference, and on February 17th, the Men's Ministry Breakfast. All those things are important, but I want to add two, um, two big announcements to those. Number one, in women's ministry, we'll have the weekend of the 23rd and 24th, uh, we're hosting a live stream of if, if Gathering, which is a women's ministry event that has multiple speakers. We'll host it and, um, and allow um, women from our church and the community to attend, and we'll see kind of how big it is and what our needs will be for that as we, as we get closer to that, but wanted to go ahead and let you know about that, and the signups for that are, are now live, and we'll figure out more of um, uh, how many people can attend, those sort of things, but I will tell you that the way the registration works, we've pre-registered a few people, and we want our people to be able to go for free, but we've limited that pre-registration, and so if you know you're going to come, register. Um, and and do that now, um, because it is a pay-for event, so those that register later will have to pay a little bit to get a spot. That's just the way that that whole thing is going to work. Um, Secondly, that same weekend, we'll have our congregational meeting. We do these twice a year. It's not a members-only meeting. Anyone's welcome to attend, to hear from key ministry leaders on on different aspects of the church. It's February 25th, and this February one comes with a chili cook-off, and so... Go ahead, start testing out your recipes. Send them my way if you need feedback before the actual competition. Um, but we will have the chili cook-off that evening, and uh, we'll have dinner together, and uh, then we'll, we'll hear our ministry reports and our annual congregational meeting um, that evening, uh, February the 25th. And then I also want to show you, um, we have a video to show you from one of our missionaries, and you can go ahead and save the date. Our missions conference is coming up on March the weekend of March 17th and so you're gonna be hearing a little bit more from some of our missionaries but this is a short video from Al Whittinghill just telling you about his ministry.
1: Hello there, my name is Al Whittinghill. I've had a great time with your people here this weekend as we focused in on God being able to give us a new beginning (laughs) first thing I want to say to you all, though, is it's been a privilege of mine and an honor to know you for probably almost 40 years now, and I've watched a lot of water go under the bridge, and you all have been faithful, and I just want to commend you because you're an example. A lot more people look at you than you know, and it's great, and it's an honor to know you. Secondly, I want to thank you specifically for your prayers and your encouragement to us in the ministry for my ministry and and my wife and I, our family, and just over the years being friends, so many of you, and you've been such an encouragement. I thank you for enabling me to seek to be faithful to the call of God. My calling is to go to a lot of churches, a lot of denominations, a lot of different places and encourage them to be all the Lord died to pay for, to make us into. And so uh, we're doing prayer conferences in churches, we're doing Bible studies, we do uh, uh, Sunday through Wednesday meetings to call them to the the footstool of the Lord and and to really in our day what the church needs is to understand what real repentance is a way of life for the Christian really means to be turning from sin, turning to the Lord and trusting Him. So we're doing a lot of things on Zoom with people overseas A lot of young people, I spend a lot of time counseling with pastors and secret talks with people that can't talk to anybody else except for a friend that's elsewhere. So pray for us, please, and thank you for for being partners with us. I'm very grateful, and I trust the Lord will bring our paths together again soon. God bless you.
0: So join us the weekend of March 16th and 17th for the Missions Conference. We'll get some more details to you as those developed. Well, if it wasn't clear from about 10 seconds into that video, I have a bit of a cough today. Sorry for almost exploding the uh, speakers there. Um, so this sermon par- brought to you in part by the coffee ladies who were generous with me with throat tea. Um, Every Sunday morning, this is a great reminder, every Sunday morning, they're serving coffee in this room right behind me, Um, Perry, Rhonda, Jan, they do a great job, there's little snacks back there, there's coffee, there's tea if your throat is bothering you, and um, we'd just love for you guys to check that out. Um, We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. We've talked a lot about positive examples, and, and all of the book of Hebrews is a book of comparison and um, there's comparisons between Jesus and angels and Jesus and Moses and Jesus and priests and all of those things. There's more and more of that, but all of those are positive things. Um, but, but this time, in this passage, we move into a negative example, which is also important. So it, it's basketball season right now, which means I am once again engaged with Jericho and Jericho's basketball team, because there's, here's this thing about me. I'm not a very good coach, and yet I am far worse at not coaching than I am at coaching. And so what has happened is, again, for about the third time in a row, I have set out to not coach a Jericho team, and yet somehow here I am, and I'm coaching Jericho's team again. Because something about me just can't shut up and can't just sit there and watch a practice and watch things, you know. So I'm coaching again, which means I have to then instruct these nine and ten-year-old boys in how to. Because let's be real, basketball is a little bit of a of a tense game. It's it's loud. It's fast. It you can't receive much coaching from the sideline, although. You can yell, which may be directly related to why my voice is weak today. I don't really know. But as you are out there, you kind of have to just go. And as a coach, you have to prepare them ahead of time to know what they're going to do and have them execute something. And all these boys, I was having a conversation with one of the dads at practice this week. One of these boys loves watching basketball. But he watches the wrong kind of basketball because what this boy does is he is trying to do all of these moves and step back threes and crossovers and drill behind his back. He's doing all these things that he just 100% cannot do and does not need to do in a game. And so in a practice, he walks off a practice having hit, he hit a step back three in practice as a nine-year-old, and man, that boy was riding high, walking off of, you know, jogging down, and his dad and I are right in front of him, as he comes jogging, we're like, that was a walk. Like, it, you, that was nothing. You can't, do not do that in a game. That was a walk. And he's like, man, what are you? So we started talking as parents, like, how do we instruct these boys? And I was like, listen, we gotta get these boys not to watch these NBA players and these YouTube videos if we, want them to fin- if we want them to find out how to play effective basketball, they've gotta be watching examples that are attainable. Examples that, that they can actually connect with. So when I take Jericho to a middle school game to watch guys that are three and four years older than him, it's, it's attainable. It's okay, that's something that I could actually mimic and I could actually pick up on and do. But then I take him to a game of kids his, his age And I'm like, okay, this is attainable too. This is both what you do and also what you don't do. And that's wisdom in life. If we looked back at where we were last summer at the book of Proverbs, what the book of Proverbs was all about is two paths all the way through. And the way the structure of the book of Proverbs works is you have a good example, lady wisdom, the path of wisdom, and then you have a bad example, lady folly, the path of foolishness and wickedness. And all throughout the book, there's this structure of good example and bad example. And so if I'm trying to help my team understand how to play an effective basketball game, I need both good examples and I need bad examples to avoid. That's how we teach. That's how we help people learn and grow. Work like this team that is doing it well. Avoid the lazy habits of this team who is doing it poorly. Those sorts of things. As we walk into Hebrews 3, 7 and following, we see a negative example, and it comes directly from the passage I already read this morning. And so we're going to see, this is the cool thing about Hebrews that makes me excited, that might make you roll your eyes, and that's totally cool, but we're just going to go there together. The, The book of Hebrews this morning causes us to step into so many generations at one time. We are the listening generation in 21st century Dalton, Georgia. But then you have to look into 1st century Rome, the original audience of the book of Hebrews. You have to think about them, Jewish background, but maybe some Greeks mixed into the church, certainly operating within a Greek and Roman um, culture of the day. But then you have to go back farther and say that Hebrews chapter 3 is quoting from Psalm 95. So then you have to go back to David's era and think what was life like in Israel in David's era. But then you have to go back even further because Psalm 95 is referring back to Exodus 17, 17, Numbers 14, and Numbers 20. So we have all these generations of the people in the wilderness, David in his day leading the nation of Israel, first century Rome and the, the author and the audience of the Hebrews, and then us. Four distinct periods of history that are all in play in this chapter. So it's a little bit complex, but in another sense, you know the story, and it's a really simple structure. It's a simple structure of a negative example followed by a personal exhortation. Following all of the threads and finding out where all of these quotations come from is super complex in Hebrews. And so we're going to give an over... And let me tell you how complex it is. It's so complex that I messed it up last week. And I got caught three times. Um, hopefully some of uh, the rest of you caught it. Um, but in, in a quotation, uh, last week, I, I misquoted, and I told you it was Zechariah 6.2, and it was actually Zechariah 6.12. So it's was easy, easy to do. want to clarify. Zechariah 6.12, not 6.2. But for today, I promise, I, tri- I triple-checked. Psalm 95, Exodus 17, Numbers 14, and even Numbers 20 all have references here. You think, how many verses are we going to read? Well, my voice is weak, so we're not going to read all of them. But we are going to refer back to all of these periods of history and figure out what exactly is the author of Hebrews communicating to that audience, and what are you supposed to do about it? How are you supposed to respond because you're neither an ancient Jew nor an ancient Roman. And so how do you live in response to what the Word of God is saying to you? We'll start Hebrews three, verse seven, and we'll read this negative example, Hebrews three: seven through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness." where your heart's put me to the test or sorry where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years therefore i was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways as i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest now that's the second time i've read most of those words this morning whether you realize it or not because those that section 3, 7 through 11 is a quotation of chapter 95 of Psalms. But there's a few things that are different there that we have to understand and clarify that help us figure out exactly what is going on here. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Psalm 95 Verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. All right, so if you have a physical Bible in front of you, if you are taking notes, or if you have the Bible app, something, I want you to highlight Hebrews 3 eight and maybe Psalm 95 five eight. if you can manage to turn back there. These verses say the exact same thing, but in English it comes out differently. Why is that? So in... in Psalm 95:8 you see two specific places Merida and Massa that are mentioned but in Psalm but in Hebrews 3:8 you see instead of Merida you see the word rebellion and instead of Massa you see the word testing why is that because that's exactly what the words mean Merida means rebellion Massa means testing. And so what is happening here is something that is easy for us in English to miss. And that's why we take a little bit of time on some of these things sometimes to understand how the Bible works, okay? What you hold in your hands is an English translation of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, three different languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek, only a little bit that's Aramaic. Those are the 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 languages that the scripture was originally written in. When you get to the New Testament, okay, you see somebody writing in Greek that is quoting Hebrew in Greek. So the author of Hebrews is using his knowledge of Hebrew to translate Psalm 95 from Hebrew to Greek and write it. And then 2,000 years later, English translators are translating Greek to English. And what's happening is what is a proper name, Masa Merida, proper names that have meaning, rebellion, testing, doesn't get translated through as clearly in all translations. So most likely you have some sort of note in your scripture that says that says that that testing or rebellion mean Merida or Masa. You may or may not, but any. Any scholar would agree, anyone that studies the book agrees. This is a direct quotation from Hebrew, from the language of Hebrew, from Psalm 95, written to these Jewish believers. Okay, why does that matter? Because if you read it in English the first time, you're like, what is the rebellion and what is the testing? Because he's telling you, he's warning you, don't be like these people back then. So then you have to to ask the question, who are those people, what do they do, who am I supposed to not be like, right? It would be like your parents saying, don't be like that guy. You're like, who's that guy? I don't know where you're talking about. We need to know who the negative example is, okay? So the negative example comes from Psalm 95. But Psalm 95 wasn't when the problem actually went down in the first place. The problem was Exodus 17. And some of you know the story. The story's a well-known one the people are wandering through the wilderness, and as they are, are wandering through the wilderness, they start to grumble and complain. And their, their thirst leads to grumbling, leads to grumpiness, leads to ir- irritability, leads to disobedience, and lack of faith, and lack of obedience in God. Now think about it. If you know the Exodus story, here's the short version. You have a nation that's in slavery in Egypt, in a foreign land. And, and, and they are forced into labor. They, they have no rights. They have no authority of themselves. They're just forced laborers that live under the rule of a foreign nation. And then God miraculously, and miraculously, through plagues and miracles, releases them, causes Pharaoh to say, get out of here. And then God miraculously... what. Wi- clears the sea so that the nation can pass, and then wipes out all of Pharaoh's army in the sea so that they cannot pursue the people as they're leaving. God has provided exceedingly abundantly. They could not have imagined a better way for God to literally pick them up and move them out. And yet, the place God moved them to isn't great. At least that's not in their mindset. Okay, so they have some new freedom, They have more control, but there's not water. There's there's not these basic things that they need for life. They're struggling to find food. They're struggling to find water. And they start grumbling and say, well, we should have just died back there. Why are we out here in the middle of nowhere so we can die in the middle of nowhere? And that's the context of Exodus chapter 17. Now, Another important context, when I read before my prayer, I read to you Psalm 95. And if you read Psalm 95, 1 through 6, it's a really happy, positive passage. Like, let's worship, let's rejoice, let's be joyful. And then the warning doesn't come till um, verse 7 and following. Psalm 95 was a very common call to worship scripture. And so, what would happen is in a Jewish synagogue within the first century, what they would do is they would open the scriptures together, and somebody would read. Before you get to the scripture of the day, you would read a call to worship, and the call to worship would be one of a few um, important psalms that had significant uh, significant power in the nation in those days. And Psalm 95 was one of the chosen ones. Psalm 95—it's a good call to worship. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise. It's a beautiful verse, beautiful passage to read. I say that to say, anyone who attended worship in the Jewish synagogue in the first century had heard this passage a hundred times. They knew it, frontwards and back. So I just had to tell you what Merida and Massa were. They didn't need that information. They immediately connected When in Hebrews 3, 7, he says, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, the audience of the book of Hebrews knew the rest of the words. They knew where this warning was going. But we need to do the work to make sure we know where the warning is going. See, what happened is the people rebelled against God, and that's why it was called Merida, or Meribah. And then the people... Tested God. The name Masa did not come to that period of time, to that place where they were in, because the people were tested by God. It is not the place that God tested his people. It's worse than that. It's the place that God's people tested God. It's the place they put him to the test. They didn't believe in him. In their unbelief, they quarreled. Exodus 17, 7 says it like this. And he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So back, I never never finished the story of what happened, but the people are grumbling and complaining. And um, God says, okay, Moses, there's a rock. I'm gonna send forth water from the rock. And so what does Moses do? He goes and God sends forth water from the rock and he strikes the rock and God does it. And so then you have this place, Meribah, Massah, the people tested God, the people quarreled, the people rebelled, but God still provided. But Psalm 95 doesn't end there and neither does Hebrews 3. There's a quotation from another period of history that comes a little bit later. Numbers 14. The story of Numbers 14 is you've heard of Joshua and Caleb and their special role in the wilderness people that they were sent out as spies. So the people are at at a place called Kadesh, okay? They're they're out of Egypt. They're looking into the promised land. And God says, send 12 spies, one from each tribe, and go and spy out the land. 10 spies come back and say, y'all, we can't do this. We need to back up. There's no way we can take this land to come back and say, God's on our side. Look where he's brought us thus far. This can't be worse than Egypt. God delivered us from Egypt. We can do this. The people sided with the 10 over the 12. The people grumbled again. And God in Numbers 14 says, these people will not enter my rest. And so the end of Psalm 95 and the end of Hebrews 3, that passage that I quoted, verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That wasn't Exodus 17. That was Numbers 14. But then you fast forward, and I don't have this one on the screen because it's not as explicitly alluded to, but in Numbers 20, something else happens. In Numbers 20, they're back at a place where they're grumbling and quarreling and testing God with no water. And again, God says, I'm going to send water out of a rock. But this time he says, Moses, go up to the rock, speak to the rock. Moses doesn't. Moses hits the rock. Moses does most of what God says, but changes it a little bit. And in Numbers chapter 20, again, the water is called Meribah because of the rebellion. And again, somebody is told, you're not going to enter my rest. And in Numbers 20, it's Moses. See, here's here's the thing. I told you last week that in this comparison, what we're comparing in this whole section is Jesus versus Moses. And so he's now shining the light on really Moses' biggest failure. Numbers 20 was was kind of Moses' biggest failure, right? The first part of chapter three, he talked about how great Moses is and how God himself defended Moses. Moses was the one who heard directly from God But now he's saying actually Moses had his faults too. And Moses never got to fully enter the rest that God promised him. He never got to enter into the promised land. Just like those that didn't listen to the spies in number 14, and just like those who were complaining about water in Exodus 17. Three biblical passages, or actually four, Old Testament passages all coming together in context for Hebrews three to say Don't be like them. Here's your negative example. Don't follow it. So before we get to the personal exhortation here, let's take another second and see what it is that we're not following. See, when the people walked up and they didn't have water, they displayed a lack of trust. No no matter what God had done for them already, they still didn't fully trust God. And see, when, when a lack of trust enters into the equation, disobedience and rebellion follow. But beyond a lack of trust, it was, it was unbelief. It was, I, I'm not sure that this God, who I saw do this incredible thing a couple weeks ago, actually is who he says he is and is on our side. And so you have all of these behavioral patterns that come out of it. Negative speech, grumbling, complaining, infighting, quarreling with each other, disobedience, unbelief and ultimately just rejection of God. All of these things are coming out in all of these passages. You can look back, Exodus 17, Numbers 14, Numbers 20, and see it all play out. And there's a reason that in Psalm 95, what David is trying to accomplish with his people, and what he's trying to to say in this period is, don't be like them. Be joyful worshipers instead of grumbling complainers. So that's a great stopping point. We could stop there and say our response, You know, I I told you we need to know what we do with the Bible and what we do in response to it. So response number one, really simple. Don't grumble and complain because God didn't give you exactly what you wanted. God hasn't given you everything you've asked for. Instead, receive the beautiful gifts he has given you with joy and obedience. It's a simple implication of Psalm 95 and all of those Old Testament passages. But Hebrews 3 takes us a little further. So we'll pick up again. Hebrews 3, verse 12, okay? We've read Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, and now we'll go to the personal exhortation in Hebrews three twelve and following. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So brothers and sisters, here's where we are today. The word of God is speaking to us and is warning us against unbelief. Don't let your hearts be hardened. Don't be like the generations of God followers that have fallen short of the promise, that have not quite made it into rest because they believed some, but but not all. Because the picture that this is painting is you can believe God enough to walk across the sea on dry ground, to, to leave your home in slavery, and not enough to feel thirst in the desert. And these people who believed God enough to walk across the sea on dry ground didn't get to enter into the ultimate promised land because of unbelief. And you think, but they but they had belief. They did something. They obeyed in so many ways. They got out of Egypt. They left everything behind. And it's almost like the author of Hebrews is saying, well, running away from slavery isn't a huge act of faith. Like, how much worse was it going to get? But actually, navigating through the wilderness, navigating through all of this searching and hardship, that was the real test of faith. But the author of Hebrews is specific with us in verses 12 through 14 with three key encouragements, three exhortations. But before we get there, we're going to look at 15 through 19, okay? 15 through 18 ask us these series of five questions. Why does he do this? Because he wants you to know and he wants the original audience to know exactly who he's talking about. Verse 16, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? I already told you who it was. He's just making sure you know. Was it not all those who left Israel led by Moses? Rhetorical question. That's who he's talking about. The rebellious people are those that already escaped slavery. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those same people? Yes. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Was it not those same disobedient people? Yes. He's he's driving that point home. These are people that are heroes in the nation of Israel. Moses is a hero. Aaron is a hero. Miriam is a hero. And none of them entered into the promised land. Because they all had different examples where they acted in unbelief. And so it's a, it's a firm warning for these first century Hebrews. Why? What is the context of the book of Hebrews and how that plays in here? I, I, I'll say this. I did um, do what I promised a month ago. I, I told you guys that I was going to start this series of videos, offstage videos, kind of behind the scenes of the book of Hebrews. So there is now on our YouTube page, and we'll email it out to you guys tomorrow, but it's live on YouTube now, an introduction to the book of Hebrews background material. It's about a 12-minute video that goes through some background information on Hebrews. It's not the question you all want that everybody asks me, who wrote the book of Hebrews? That's next week's question. But it will give you some background, and we'll, we'll produce four or five of those as we go throughout this series to give you kind of a deeper look into some things that we don't have time to do on here. But in that video, it will tell you that the occasion of the book as I've said before, is simply, you have people that have been following Jesus that are tempted to turn back. It's literally the Exodus in a new way, okay? The Exodus, they had left slavery to go into the promised land and follow, Jesus, and follow God into his promised land. And in Hebrews, you have people who have left Judaism to follow Jesus the Messiah. But following Jesus the Messiah has been harder than they expected. Like the wilderness was harder than the Old Old Testament saints expected. And because following Jesus is hard, they're tempted to reject Jesus now and go back to Judaism, to following the Old Testament. So he's pleading with them, don't harden your hearts. Don't be a reversal of history and go back and do the same thing that these people did. So there's three personal exhortations to keep us from falling into the same trap. Verse 12, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Literally, you could just say, watch out. Take care, watch out. You could say it either way. And what are we watching out for? Ourselves. The first application of this passage, watch out for yourself. And what am I looking out for in verse 12? I'm looking out for signs of an unbelieving heart. That's what the author of Hebrews is worried about his people, his church, his audience struggling with. A heart that doesn't actually believe what the mouth and head says it believes. We're talking about the problem of a believing head in a a proclaiming, confessing mouth, but a heart that's not quite there. Have we ever seen that in church, in Christians? Absolutely we have. There's plenty of Christians around us, each of us, that have heard the good news of Jesus, that have committed to follow Jesus, that could answer your questions and check the right boxes, but yet there's something in their heart that isn't connected that isn't fully yielded to Jesus, that is holding back for the ways of the world. (coughs) And there are some signs. The reason we take the time to look at Exodus 17, Numbers 14, and Numbers 20, what are the signs of the unbelieving heart there? Grumbling, complaining, not being, God's gifts never being quite good enough. That's still the sign of an unbelieving heart. And you are tempted to think, well, God just seems to be blessing that other person more than me. Why is it I pray and I pray and I pray, and this person got that promotion and not me? And this person, it seems like everything he does is just being blessed and all these doors are opening. What, what's God doing in my life? It, just, it, doesn't, it, doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like God is doing enough for me. Or I asked God to heal me of this. I asked God to take this temptation away. And it just wasn't enough. It's a sign of an unbelieving heart. Yeah, sure, God, you parted the Red Sea. But could I have a glass of water? I really wanted some of that water to drink. Yeah, sure, God, you, you saved me from my sin. But I wish you'd save me from this result of my sin that I'm dealing with right now. I know that I'm in the difficult position I'm in because I screwed up and I did this, but God, I just wish, I wish you would take care of this. I wish you would help me just a little bit more. Maybe an unbelieving heart is the person that says, ah, it's just too hard. All these questions of science and these questions of the creation of the world and you know, there's so many people that don't believe in God. Why, why do I have to? Haven't, haven't we reached a point in society where we don't have to do that thing anymore? all signs of an unbelieving heart. Grumbling, bitterness, quarreling, biting and devouring brothers and sisters in the church. Because you know what? I love Jesus, but that Christian, I just really don't like him. Or that church, they they didn't do it for me. All of those signs of an unbelieving heart that ultimately results in disobedience. So the first implication, the first application Watch yourself, watch your own heart, and ask, am I in the right place? Am I really exercising belief in my heart? Second point in verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in the first point you have a responsibility to yourself and to your own heart. And in the second point, you have a responsibility to your brother and sister. You have a responsibility to those around you. And so, like, my sin is my problem, but then in another sense, our sin is our problem. And as brothers and sisters within a community, within a church, we do have a responsibility to each other. When we see concerning signs, when we see things that we think may be leading somebody towards um, unbelief or a hardened heart, or disobedience. We have to, in some way, lovingly, find the way to talk about those. I had a conversation with a guy a couple weeks ago. He called me, he's like, what do I do? I gotta make this phone call. I don't know what to say, but my buddy, he messed up. And I was like, well, does your buddy know he messed up, or does your buddy need somebody to lovingly tell him you messed up? Because we all need a little bit of both. Like Sometimes we need somebody to get in our face and say, hey, you messed this up. You need to repent. You need to change. But then when we realize we messed up, we don't need everybody to say that. Once you get it, you don't need everybody in your life to say, you messed up, you messed up, you messed up. Sometimes you need somebody to say, I still love you. I'm there. I'm going to help you fix this. You messed up, but it's not over. We can work through this. What's the plan? Let's work together on a plan. Both of those are examples of exhorting one another to keep from, from, from falling into this hardness of sin. How might you exhort one another? You might say to somebody you love, you know what? It really feels like you haven't been with, with the assembled body of believers at church in a while. It really feels like you're, you're not regularly there. Not that church attendance is everything, but, but what does it say about your heart? Like, I, I miss you. I want you to be there how are you? You might exhort another brother or sister by saying, hey, you know, how's your, how's your life with Jesus? What are you praying about? I hear you talk about things that are going wrong in your life and I hear how difficult these, these things are with your family, with your job. I hear all the negativity and I, I know, man, you're really facing some, some hard stuff. Can I pray with you about it? How are you praying about it? How's your family praying about it? It may even be super personal. It may be somebody says, hey, I'm really in a tough place financially. You know, I I didn't make as much as I expected to in this season of time. And bills are tight. We had these unexpected expenses. And you have to get super uncomfortable if you have to say, hey, have you ever sat down and really prayed about your finances? Prayed about how God might use you as a steward over your finances? Have you given those to God or are you just kind of holding on to those yourself? Because I'll be the one, I'll be the one to pray for you, I'll pray with you, that God would meet your physical needs, and that you would be a good steward, that you would give some towards his church, that you would be faithful in serving him. Those sort of questions, some of them super personal, and some of them just encouraging, hey, I love you, I'm concerned about you, how can I pray for you? That exhorting one another, being there for one another, noticing one another, We don't come into an assembly of the body of Christ with our head down and just try not to make eye contact and get out as soon as we can. We're supposed to notice other people, love other people, serve other people, exhort one another as long as it is called today. So you have a responsibility to yourself, you have a responsibility to one another, and you have a responsibility to God in verse 14, number three. Hold on. Hold on. He says, we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's so many people around all of us who are Christians in name only. We can call them nominal Christians, cultural Christians. And they're the ones that Jesus says at the end, depart from me, I never knew you. And these people, Jesus says, they worked miracles in his name, they prophesied in his name, all of these things. But we have to be on the lookout for them We have to be on the lookout for each other. And we have to hold on to Jesus and say, you know, my life is messed up right now. Maybe you are going through something difficult. But Jesus, I know. I know that you are there and that you have still saved me. The thing about the Exodus that is so painful to look back on with historical perspective God had already given them the greatest gift by delivering them and establishing the promise. He proved the end by what he did at the beginning. He made the promise. He fulfilled everything he said he was going to do up to that point, and he said, I'm going to get there. You're going to get to the promised land. You're going to get to the rest. And it's a picture for us in our moment of salvation too. He's given us the greatest gift already. Jesus has died for your sin. Jesus has resurrected again so that you would have life. It doesn't feel like everything's peaceful and joyful at all times in this life. It really feels like culture and society are really messed up. It really feels like families are in disarray. It really feels like there's division and pain and disease all around us. But the greatest gift of Jesus has already been given... And the ultimate implication has been promised. And God always does what he says he's going to do. And so Jesus is telling us, hold on. Keep that confidence. He's not changing. He's not going anywhere. Walk out the Christian life by watching out for your own heart, by exhorting one another and living in community, and by rehearsing the truths of that confidence you had in first. Because the world will bring hardship, and it will bring pain. We have the privilege this morning to go to the Lord's table, so I'm going to ask the band to join me on screen or on stage and the uh, servers to join me up here. We have three simple applications of today's message. Watch out for your own heart, exhort one another, and hold fast. And every single one of us could probably apply all three of those things evenly. Question your own heart and where you are in Jesus. Find someone else to encourage this week and love and exhort to good deeds. And remember the gospel. Remember that place you started, the founder of our, sa- of our salvation, the author, perfecter of our faith. Remember what he has done, what he has granted to us. The way we celebrate the Lord's Supper here is I'll first distribute the bread through these guys, and they'll pass it down the aisles, and if you would, take the bread and hold it, and then they'll come with the juice soon afterwards. Hold on to both of those, and we'll partake of both together up here. But as the elements are going out, the band is going to lead us in a song, and you can stand and sing. You can worship, you can can kneel down where you are, you can come to the altar, or you can sit with your family in reflection and question, where is my heart? And am I I in a place of confidence in my relationship with Jesus? Let me pray for us, and we'll distribute the omens. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that we have the opportunity now to receive your broken body and your shed blood. And God, as these elements go out, may you, Father, may you work in us to revive our hearts, restore an unbelieving heart to full faith. Father, we pray that we would be lights for you as we leave this place today, and that that light would be renewed in this moment, where we receive your body and receive your blood. In Jesus' name.